Good morning, religions of India. We're on the air. So, um, first of all, are there any questions? We're sort of halfway through. This is the halftime show. We'll have a Vedic marching band coming in. So, are there any questions about anything we've done so far? I mean, academically. This is your opportunity. Any questions related to your papers? Papers, as I said before, the papers are either due before or after homecoming, so you can either have your vacation free or use the extra time as you wish. If okay. we were to put together a draft early, we can use a draft and give some advice and then... Yeah, I mean, if you want to, you're free to ask any question. I've actually, I tried to encourage that, maybe not as aggressively as I could have, but if you want, if you want to give like certain feedback before I have to grade your paper, you can also do that, which may be in your rational self-interest <coughs> to get. And so you're welcome to do that if you want to show me an outline or a particular ideas you have and get some feedback. I'd be happy to do that. It's part of my job description. How much sooner than the due date would you want us to send it? Uh, I mean, can you do it within two days, or do you want a week's notice? Well, it depends on how much you send me. I mean, if you, yeah, so if you could get it sooner rather than later. So I'd be happy to help you and give you the comments before you turn your final draft. Yes. Okay. I have a few questions. Okay. Um, starting with the oldest group, uh, they're considered Oh, for Shaya, like, there's no human authorship. It's coming from divine help. Um, and the same thing with the Upanishads. Like, the Upanishads seem, like, very confusing. Like, there are certain... It's very ambiguous. Like, one, there's a very famous passage where they say, how many gods? 33, 3, 33 million, 1,000? I mean, no one gives, like, a definite answer. And then the Vedas... Why doesn't, if it's coming down from the Supreme Authority, just say, this is how it is, and... Okay, what well, if, it's, if it's a divinely revealed text, yeah. why does it appear to be somewhat speculative and yeah. to give different views? Any visitor chance? Anyone want to? <laughs> I have an idea myself, but if anyone here would like to address that. Going, going. Well, what I think is that, um, oh my God, what did you do? <laughs> I think um, those who, it seems to me that there are a few answers, well, three come to mind immediately. One is that someone could just be skeptical and say, I don't believe this is really divinely revealed. Of course, that doesn't really address your issue. So among people, among people within the tradition that accept that it is coming down from on high, I think they give two answers. One would be that um, there really is a single ultimate truth, but it's found within somewhat esoteric language. It appears on the surface of it to be speculative, but you need a guru and you need to be in a higher state of consciousness, you need to practice, and then you can ultimately penetrate the surface ambiguity and get to the ultimate meaning. And then uh, someone might also say that 
is coming from God, but that God gives us intellectual breathing room. And that there simply may be different ways to look at things. And that um, to be faithful or to believe in and practice the tradition doesn't mean that there's not room for independent intellectual activity on certain topics. And that ultimately, um, it gets into an issue, for example, at one point in uh, the history of the Christian church, at one point, when there was only one Christian church in, in most of Europe, at one point the, the Vatican, you could say, believed that it was their responsibility or their privilege to give an authoritative statement on everything, including astronomy and planetary motion and so on. And then they got into that whole dust-up with Galileo. And of course, scientists will never let us forget the trial of Galileo. It's like, because that's, that's like the, the example of what happens when religion meddles with science. So, so it, it, we have, I mean, if we have the assumption that religion or a religious text should explain everything, sometimes you see this attitude towards a guru where people may feel that everything the guru says, whether it's on a material topic or a spiritual topic, is all equally absolute. And there's you know, a type of psychology where you hang on every word on any topic. And there's another approach to the guru or to scripture where basically it's giving uh, important spiritual information and it's statements on astronomical or microscopic or geographical issues is just uh, maybe poetic, it may be didactic, trying to get a point across. And so, for example, you could say that in, in the Upanishads, maybe the point is that uh, it's not really possible to know everything in the universe. One could argue that the universe is made by God and therefore there's infinite complexity and all kinds of strange and amazing things in the world. You can't really know all of it. And that's the point of the Upanishads to discourage you from trying to become materially omniscient, even with the help of the scripture. So we're a little flexible about it. I mean, there's different ways you can approach it. Yes? Um, the topic of my paper is on the Spota theory. On the Spota. And it's um, the idea that um, there is the, the way that language works is that there is a meaning floating continually all the time, and it's within all of us. And the, the way that we speak is we take this meaning that we want to convey, we make an error of it, and we portray it as, as language. So an error? Like an error. Saying? They say that whatever you're saying is, is an actual error, a deviation from the actual truth of what's inside you. So in saying that, you know, that there is a truth, and it is God, and God can reveal himself to you, but you are limited in how you can do it, just for the sheer fact that you're speaking language, and you're trying to communicate it through the deficiency of what language is, mm. what human language is. So you're going to make an error of whatever God is, and just the sheer fact that you're saying it. So. It's very interesting. It's very interesting because that's... Of course, there were other schools that would, I think, would oppose that, but it's a very interesting way of looking at it. I mean, the idea that language is limiting is a very old theory, which is found in many places. The idea that the idea of ineffability, that you can't really express the truth in words, that whenever you, exactly as you put it, put it very well, that 
whenever you speak, you're limiting or, in a sense, uh, abstracting and, and obscuring or distorting that which you're trying to express. And ultimately, there, there's an unspeakable truth which you have to realize through pure consciousness or something like that. And of course, the, 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 it's very then the counter theory would be that, um, that actually language itself, and this gets into um, what we talked about, I think, yesterday. The Gita, remember the upside-down tree? That unforgettable upside-down tree that inspired you all so much, artistically. Um, the idea that things of this world, things of this world, including language, are a reflection of a spiritual counterpart. So that uh, we speak because God speaks. And actually, there is no absolute or a priori limit to what words can do. The words often do limit. I mean, I mean, they can have that function, especially when the words are coming from someone that doesn't have deep experience of what they're saying. But that when words are spoken by an enlightened person, uh, words can actually very powerfully open consciousness and reveal many, many things. So, yeah, so, so this, these different attitudes toward language itself reflect different attitudes toward the nature of reality, the nature of ultimate reality. Because if you think ultimate reality is personal and speech is very much a part of what it means to be a person, then you might be inclined to think that speech really has no absolute limits. It can just become more and more and more meaningful depending on the speaker and the hearer. Whereas if one is inclined to think the truth is ultimately impersonal, of course they would see speech as simply one of those personal characteristics that get left behind or, or become transcended when one comes to the highest consciousness. Yes? Um, Giza 335 and 1847, they're both about like better to do your duty perfectly than doing something else. Uh, Mm. Yeah, yeah, there are two verses. Very good. It's, it's uh, what is it? Sanskrit, Shayan, Swadharma, Viguna. Better your own dharma, even Viguna, sort of. With the, yeah, Viguna, without real quality, than someone else's dharma. Yeah, so, so this is often interpreted by some scholars as being a type of social conservatism in the Gita, that the Gita is endorsing a sort of an oppressive caste system. And uh, I think that's a misinterpretation, but I'll explain why. We, I, you know, I didn't want really to get a chance to talk so much, I might have wanted to, about sociology and all that, but after all, you have to remember that again and again, as I explained in chapter 18, Krishna, I think, says about seven or eight times in the last chapter of the Gita, that, uh, that um, your duty in life, your, your position within the social system is Swabhava Ja. Ja means born of. Like, the English word generate. And Bhava is state of existence, and Swab means one's own. So, in other words, your duty comes from your own nature. Bless you. I understand that. So therefore, but the, but see, the logical conclusion is, if you're Varna, you're Brahmana, or Kshatriya, or Vaishya, or Shudra, or whatever, if that comes from your own nature, then what Krishna is saying is that it is dangerous not to live according to your nature. 
I think, I think a lot of psychology would agree with this. And what ultimately Krishna will explain again in chapter 18 is that if you don't align, now there's a contemporary psychological world, word, if you don't align your nature with your duty, your nature, being your nature, is going to act anyway. It's going to act anyway, but you're not going to have a vocational outlet for it. You're not going to be in alignment. You're not going to be harmonious. And so your nature will push you to act in certain ways, but those actions are somehow not harmoniously integrated within a coherent social system. And so it's better, what Krishna's saying is, it's dangerous not to live and act according to your real nature. So is your ask. nature, would your, your nature or your duty be your dharma? Well, Krishna says your duty comes from your nature. He says, subhava jam karma. Karma can also mean duty. Uh, karma means many things. So, Krishna says, what he says eight times, I think, in the last chapter of the Gita, is that your duty within the social system comes from your nature. It's not that you were born a certain way and so society comes down on you, hey, you know, this is your position, stay in your place, and it's very dangerous to get out of your place. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying it's your nature, who you are, your, your, your nature. That determines your duty, and therefore it's dangerous to develop a life, a vocation, which is not in alignment with your nature. That's what the Gita is actually teaching. Is it speaking, like, for a woman, for instance, I'm just giving a practical example. Um, if she has some duties that inherently come from being a wife and mother and a daughter and all these kinds of duties, and then there's this nature, born of nature, that you, someone's inclined to learning, and, and then it's, uh, how do you, like, understand that you have no inclination for doing those kind of duties like bathing and dressing your mother or cooking for your kids, or, but you're more interested in learning. So where, how do you reconcile this karma with your bond from your nature, like, for instance? Okay. <laughs> um, well, if, uh, let's see, this is going to be a sort of a grid. There's the Varna axis, which is, you could just say Brahma, Kshatriya, Vaishya, Sudra. Then there's the Ashram axis, which you could say is, uh, well, you'd have to say, that's what it is. Uh, B stands for Brahmacharya, Brahmacharini, a celibate student, boy or girl. And then the person may get married, that's Grihasta, householder. And then Vanaprastha is, uh, I think it was in the book, it must have been in the book somewhere. Vanaprastha is when uh, your children are grown up, you've sent them all to college, and now the husband and wife can actually just get away and focus. And, and basically do what they did when they were young, and that is really focus on their spiritual life and their own personal freedom. And then finally there's sannyas, or complete renunciation of the world. So, uh, let's say, for example, right now you're here. On this axis, you're here. I'm not, I hope this axis thing works out. So, but let's say you are a Brahmin in the sense that you're intellectually inclined, you're, you're inclined toward knowledge rather than just doing business or governing people or whatever. Then you're also here. So this is where you are in, in the social system, and it's, uh, 
so um, if, if you think of it as, as a grid in that way, to identify where someone is, you have to know two things about them. And so, for example, let's say someone was a shudra, what was uh, doing some kind of work, working for someone else. Uh, and let's say they were, whoops, oh, here's a shudra thing. Let, let's say the person was uh, not married. So there's all kinds of different points here. Now, if someone chooses to get married, then they are accepting certain responsibilities. If you, let's say, buy a ticket, get on a commercial flight, say, from Orlando to Portland, Oregon, and let's say halfway through the flight, you go to the flight attendant and say, I changed my mind. Can we go back? Uh, no. So, so the point is that if someone chooses to get married and chooses to have children, then that's a choice they made for which they're responsible. You could also freak out on the plane until they land you midway. True. It's very true. <laughs> very good point. Yeah, you could always freak out on the plane, and then they would make a special landing. <laughs> they couldn't otherwise sedate you, I suppose. So, yeah, so if someone, and if someone really just is not making it in a particular situation, obviously, uh, you, know, you don't just go down the ship, you have to find some other situation. What is that, that axis? Oh, the axis of evil here? Let's see. Oh, these are the harness here, and these are the ashrams. It's Friday for me, too. These are the ashrams, which are brahmachari, vihasta, manaprasana, sannyasa. These, the, these are the different occupations, like a brahmana, kshatriya, vaisya, shudra, and those are the ashrams. So a person's location within society is based on both of those. Yes? Okay, quick one. Um, one of the doctors Schweig Gita, it says the Kermi, K-A-R-M-I, translates as a sacred worker. Really? Oh. I didn't write the page number. That was... I, anyway, it's not such a big deal. No, it's okay. It's, I'm sure it'll help the self-esteem of the Karmis, but it'll... Um, <laughs> The word karma, of course, you know. <laughs> I think what he's referring to is the distinction. Is this distinction of the Gita, which I mentioned? Uh, he must be thinking of this. Karma, in this context, just means your duty within the Vedic social system. And then, if you transcend that, in the sense that you become an enlightened soul, and you're not simply working for your own gain within the world, then that's called a karma. And if one is engaged in sort of out-of-control behavior, behavior that would be considered inappropriate or criminal or sinful and so on, that would be called the karma. So to be doing karma means that one is acting to some extent according to a moral code and even according to certain religious injunctions in the sense of uh, working for profit but then offering certain sacrifices and so on. So I think it's because of this connection of the karma with certain scriptural codes for ordinary working people that it's translated as sacred worker. Uh, just curious, you mentioned how the different yugas, the length, are, length of each yuga is, you know, quarter times and all the qualities and stuff. I was just curious, is the, the size of the population uh, more in order Yugas and, or is the Kali Yuga? That's mentioned in the uh, 
take the book on um, Buddhism, the book on Buddhism, little book on Buddhism or Buddhist philosophy, that uh, the the law of karma or the system of karma operates in many different worlds, not just the earth. And so, in terms of the population on earth, humans or something, we don't get an absolute number, like there's more human beings on earth in this age than that age. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the general population, sometimes people ask, like, why aren't there uh, more or less humans on the earth in different ages? And so it's a sort of a cosmic system. Last one. Um, uh, there was, I, I cannot give you the source of the story, but I think it's from the Mahabharata. There was one Sudra who was performing austerities, and for that reason, that kingdom was suffering from some calamities, because he was not supposed to be doing the job description. He was doing a Brahman. And where's, where, where's that from? Mahabharata, I think apparently in this Kingdom of King Yudhishthira or something that there was. I, I can't remember that part. Yeah, of perhaps it. you could. I mean, maybe I'll just speak about it generally because I don't. I yeah, like why can't the Sudra wants to? Perform? Well, there are different periods in Indian history and in Vedic and Hindu history. In a certain period, there was a type of oppressive uh, conservatism, or, or, or you know, the caste system became an instrument of oppression. In certain places, at certain times, in other places, in other times, it wasn't. Yes. I mean, in the Bhagavad Gita, you said that he emphasizes beauty based on your nature, not your birth. But yeah. the whole Mahabharata, especially in the case of Karma, it seems to really be that they don't accept him because of his birth, ironically. Okay, do all of you know the story of Karna? Karna was the unknown son of Kunti. And uh, for some reason, which I won't analyze right now, Karna uh, is an object of extraordinary sympathy. In, in certain Hindu circles. But actually, if you look at the original Mahabharata text, what becomes clear is that Karna himself had certain character flaws, and uh, he was rejected. First of all, the, the text that says that he was rejected, for example, when, when all the princes were competing to win Draupadi, the princess, and he was rejected, uh, that's not actually part of the original Mahabharata text. That's something that's sort of like added later. And it doesn't appear in, in the vast majority of Mahabharata texts. And, uh, and when he came to compete with the princes? Yeah, but he was actually, well, just so you all know what we're talking about, so, that's, so it's not a completely private discussion. When the Pandavas were sort of like older teenagers, and they were, it was their high school graduation, basically. You know, the five brothers, the Pandavas, was their high school graduation. And they were graduating from military school. And so the Mahabharata described they set up this special arena because they were all the princes of the realm. So they built this special little arena, and there was a ceremony, and everyone came, family and friends, for the graduation ceremony. At that point, uh, all the princes showed what they'd learned in school. Karna sort of broke into the, sort of crashed the ceremony, and without any provocation, any reason at all, wanted to humiliate, if not kill, Arjuna. And uh, Duryodhana, the bad guy, the cousin of the Pandavas, and he's definitely the bad guy in Mahabharata, uh, he immediately sort of uh, embraced Karna and said, hey, I'll make you a king, and then you can be on my side. And so throughout Karna's life, he showed different character flaws, including lying and um, taking active part in assassination plots against innocent people. 
And uh, as far as my analysis of it is, I think that that was kind of staged, that he broke, that he crashed the graduation ceremony. And that the reason he was rejected is not simply because, you know, you're the wrong birth. It was because actually he was trying to do something bad. And so they sort of played the cast card on him because that's what they could do at the moment. But he was really trying to do something very bad. He was trying to harass, humiliate, and perhaps even kill innocent people and uh, for whatever motives. So as Karna, the innocent victim, I, I said that's a much more complex story than it's often understood. Poor Karna, he was the wrong, he, you know, he was considered to be the wrong cast. Therefore, when rejected him, there's a lot more going on there. Any other questions? About your papers? I think it's not. Uh, I had a little thing I was going to do, you know, just like summarizing the class. Maybe I can just go through it very quickly. This is a book. I hope I get to this. I want to get to this. It's a, very, it's a very provocative article that I want to talk to you about. This is a book called Authority, Anxiety, and Canon. And uh, it's an anthology that was done, I think, in 94. And all the authors of these articles are very much mainstream, respected scholars. They're, they're actually some of the most well-known people in the field of Indian studies. Uh, the editor, Lori Patton, is up at Emory. And the article I wanted to talk about, if I get around to it, is by a friend of mine named Frank Clooney, who, among other things, is a Jesuit, a practicing Jesuit. And uh, also he holds the, uh, I think, probably the most important uh, Hinduism chair at Harvard University. And a uh, very, very well-known scholar. So he's written a very provocative article here. He's definitely one of the leading scholars in this country in this Indian studies field. And uh, to me, I'll run through this very quickly, this stuff, and then go to the other stuff. You can talk in California, right? Everything's stuff. So <laughs> anyway, uh, this is this sort of, what do, they, what do they call that now in the political debates? Fact checks? This is a little fact check, isn't it? Fact check, because in the first class I gave, I said we're going to cover certain things, and so I hope we actually covered them and that uh, you will vote for me. So, <laughs> in the first class, we, I mentioned that India was a relevant country. It's one of the second largest country in the world. It's, it's growing economically. It's growing in international political importance. It's always, for most of its history, had a large degree of freedom, and therefore you get a full range of types of religion in India. Because you get, you get a huge number of intelligent people who are free for a very long time and religiously inclined. So basically you get it all. Um, then, in terms of being balanced, uh, religions are one and different. There's a sense in which uh, we're all just people. And there are certain obvious common denominators in such religions as Buddhism, Jainism, the early Vedic religion, different types of Hinduism. For one thing, almost all of them bought into concepts such as karma uh, and samsara. Samsara means that we're going from birth to birth. Karma means that that transmigration is governed by a rational system of punishments and rewards. So it's a combination of samsara and karma. Uh, they all accepted Dharma. Dharma was very important in Buddhism and Jainism and also became a, a very key aspect of Buddhism. And they all, in different ways, at least these major religions, uh, believed in what I call Prakash, which means enlightenment. In the sense that 
the surface reality that we perceive just by being human, when you just walk down the street or talk to your friends, that's not the whole story. There's a very important, very significant reality beneath the surface. Beneath the surface. And in fact, the purpose of human life is through meditation, austerity, charity, devotion, uh, scriptural study. By various means, the goal, the real purpose of human life is to reach that higher reality, which is beneath the surface. And that's real life. When you get to that higher reality, that's when real life begins, and, and, and in some way that's eternal. Even for Buddhists, where the Bodhisattva comes back again and again, basically perpetually, uh, to help people. So, those are common denominators. There are obvious differences. Like, is there a soul? Is there not a soul? Is there an eternal soul or not? Is there a God or not? And uh, based on how you answer those questions, your eschatology, from the Greek word eschatos, the end or the final time. So, what ultimately happens? Let's say you go with the program, the Buddhist program, the Jain program, Vedanta program in its various forms. Let's say you, 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 know, you sign up. You go with the program. Where do you eventually end up? What's the grand prize? When, it's, when all is said and done, where do you end up? And what do you look like? Who are you? Are you a person? Are you not a person? Uh, yeah, what's going on if you get the grand prize in one of these paths? And so, that's another point of disagreement. Then we talked about scholarship itself, uh, especially in terms of, uh, apart from my harassment of poor Professor Rodriguez, we also looked more closely at Indo-European scholarship. And uh, the fact that when Europeans really discovered how immense and sophisticated this Vedic culture and literature was, uh, they had, some people had an allergic reaction because they were very heavy-duty Christians and needed all non-white people to be primitive and basically stupid and in desperate need of European culture and Christian religion. And so the discovery of this distinctly non-white people with an extremely sophisticated body of literature, ancient history, and so on, some people had an allergic, bless you, hope it's not the chalk, I have to stop using the chalk. So, some people had an allergic reaction. Some people who basically you might say were the more secular liberal types in Europe at the time and were feeling that sort of that, that the Christian church in Europe throughout its history had kind of sucked all the oxygen out of intellectual life and uh, they felt kind of claustrophobic in that particular tradition. They, some of them looked to India romantically as the, as the metaphysical salvation that Maybe ancient India was the new Eden. Maybe that was really Eden. Maybe that was where God's original pristine revelation had taken place. And that here was a tradition which was not only spiritual and even theistic, but was not fanatical. It was tolerant and it, it celebrated, or didn't celebrate, but at least it certainly embraced diversity. So some people, there was kind of like this polemical reaction. Some people were totally allergic to it and thought that you know, Hinduism is sort of, and Buddhism that's kind of like the enemy against Christianity. Some people thought it's great, this is actually what Western civilization needs. There were people in the middle. And so it was a big, I mean, Europe itself was almost like convulsed by this. And um, 
this quest for the Indo-European homeland, the fact that Europeans and uh, South Asians were somehow connected, culturally connected, linguistically connected, and where do we all come from, and so on. And, and actually, it led, unfortunately, uh, the one person who kind of basically ruined the party and just ended this whole thing was Adolf Hitler. I mean, that's why Hitler used certain symbols, like the swastika, which is a Sanskrit word, as I explained. It's an auspicious symbol. It certainly wasn't in Germany. But anyway, Hitler, because he took this whole Indo-European discussion going on in Europe and turned it into this monstrous political instrument, he kind of, uh, I mean, Indo-European stuff kind of went a bit out of fashion after, after World War II. But anyway, there was that. And uh, then another thing we covered is to what extent is there continuity between the oldest forms of Vedic culture and then more recent Hinduism? And as one example, we talked about Vishnu, Vishnu in the Vedas, the fact that the Purusha, this person, is mentioned in the 10th book of the Rig Veda, the oldest Sanskrit book. And Vishnu is mentioned in the Brahmana literature, that the sacrifice is Vishnu in a totally sacrificial culture. I mentioned also that in the Chandogya Upanishad, 7.1.2 and .5. Chandogya that um, it's mentioned that the Puranas, and we haven't talked about the Puranas, but they actually exist. We will talk about them if we all survive homecoming. So, in the Puranas, which are later literature, like the Bhagavatam, and in the Itihasa, like Mahabharata and Ramayan, it talks, it, um, which talks, it, it's, these are sort of the quintessential Hindu texts. Stories of great kings and incarnations of God, all kinds of adventures and Brahmins and so on. And that the Chandogya itself said this is the fifth Veda. So if you take this seriously, there could be a continuity between the earliest Vedic literature and then what is now called Hinduism. Or is it something very different? So issues of continuity. And then Buddhism, of course. The Shramana traditions, which really transformed, in a sense, the Vedic culture with their emphasis on morality. It's not just about technical sacrifice, and uh, things like that, but, but just being a good person, morality, ahimsa, non-violence, being kind to other people, being kind to animals and all creatures, and the Jain movement, which was very powerful also. So definitely this, this powerful emphasis on morality as really at the heart of religion, goodness, virtue, kindness, I think, as far as I can see, was a very positive influence, and, um, and definitely had a transforming effect. The Shramana traditions, which they were the most prominent exa uh, examples of, people wanting to get away from the cities with, with sometimes what they felt was like this stuffy, oppressive caste system. Oh my God, we got an epidemic happening. Yeah. <laughs> Better call the Center for Disease Control. Yeah. So, anyway, you know, getting away from the city and going out to the country, out to the wilderness, camping out, meditating. You know, there's a certain freedom. Just get away from it all coming up with new ideas. And so this, in a sense, revitalized, you could say, Indian religion. At a time when animal sacrifice, according to Hinduism itself, and according to other historical evidence, was kind of out of control. And we sort of had this large uh, Hindu kosher industry, you might say. And then, and then the uh, Buddhists and Jains speaking against this. Some things are kind of in touch with nature. They're actually out in the forest. Sort of like a Vedic Bambi story or something. Anyway, they're out in the forest, and they're actually living with the animals, and they're saying, uh, there's even stories like this. There are stories where a sage 
is meditating out in the forest, and a king comes to hunt. And the sage, who's really living with the animals, and kind of, you know, sort of like the deer whisperer or something, you know, he's really like living out there with the animals, and, and says to the king, like, don't kill these animals. They're my friends. I live with these people. And, I, and I've gotten to know them. It's like you wouldn't appreciate it if a hunter came and was aiming at your pet dog or cat. And so uh, you actually have stories in Hindu literature of sages bonding with animals and really sort of integrating themselves into nature and, and objecting to the brutality, the violence against these animals. There's even one story of Shobri Muni where he was meditating at the bottom of a lake. There were yogis, at least they're described in literature, that, that could meditate at the bottoms of lakes because they had this yogic power. And uh, one person came to, to fish, and the yogi wanted to protect the fish because he felt, you know, the fish are my buddies. So it's interesting. You, so you can see the connection between the shamana movement, which means back to nature. It's the back to nature movement. And this uh, revolt against uh, brutalizing animals, killing Did animals. Uh, no, he got himself in trouble too. That was sort of a special situation. He kind of messed with the wrong guy. It's just kind of confusing to me because it seems like being in the forest is kind of the most difficult place to be vegetarian. Uh, there's a word in Sanskrit. Well, uh, the Sanskrit word bana means forest, and there's a very common word, uh, banya from the forest, which means sort of like forest fair, F-A-R-E. So that's the original organic sort of, you know, raw food movement. It's like yeah, you have to understand, India's a tropical country that has a, at least it did, still to some extent, this just an incredible variety of fruit.